The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. How is the Wednesday night crew? Alive. Alive. Jeremy, that was walk down memory lane, dude. I was back in high school youth group, literally. I was like, wow. I miss those songs. Those are great songs, though. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on open to Romans chapter 8. This pulpit is not structurally sound. It's kind of stressing me out a little bit. I'm not going to put my coffee there. Well, tonight, guys, uh, is the very last teaching in our Be Like or Live Like Jesus series, uh, which is crazy. We've been going through this for a few months now, and tonight is the concluding teaching. We're going to take two weeks off um, from our midweek service through the holidays, as we typically do, uh, and then we'll be back, you know, in here in, in, in on January with a new series, which we uh, can't announce yet because we don't know what it is yet, but it will be <laughs> epic. Trust me, whatever it is. Um, anyway, so Romans eight. Does anyone need a Bible? Don't be shy, and you're gonna need a Bible tonight because we're gonna cover a lot of Bible tonight. So you right there. Anyone else? Yep. All right. Just because you don't have one doesn't mean you don't read it. I know. Anyone else? Yeah? Okay, there you go. Oh, I got more. Hold on. <clears throat> All right. Is that everybody? Everybody got a handout? Everybody got the thing on your chair? Okay. Fill in the blank. All right, guys. Let's, uh, let's pray one more time before we, we get started. And I'm going to, as I, as I typically do, I'm going to ask you guys to spend about 20 seconds just inviting the Lord, quieting your heart before the Lord tonight and saying, God, would you speak to me? Would you um, have truth for me tonight, Lord? Father in heaven, it is such a wonderful thing to follow you. Um, you are a God that uh, meets us when we ask. You're a God that speaks to us when we listen. You're a God that delights to reveal yourself to us. And Tonight, God, as we get into the word and we look at the scriptures, Father, we pray for very simply, Lord, that we would be come more exposed to the reality of who you are. God, as we expose ourselves to the scriptures and how the scriptures portray you as glorious and as powerful and as loving, God, that we would respond to that truth tonight. And Father, we thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. We thank you that we have conquered all things in Christ and tonight, we want that freedom to come upon us. We want the yoke that is made for us by you, Christ, to come upon us tonight. The yoke of this world, may it be broken, may it be shattered, may it be put away tonight. And may we walk out these doors as free men and free women who have walked victoriously in what has been purchased for us by the cross. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight... The topic, the last topic, uh, and rightfully so, is how do we conquer like Jesus? We've gone over all sorts of different aspects of what Jesus did in his life, that he suffered, that he served, uh, that he died, that he healed, etc., all those different kinds of things. And tonight we're concluding with the question, how do we conquer like Jesus, because the last thing Jesus did in his earthly ministry, if you remember, was he, he did not just die, as we looked at last week, but he rose. He conquered. He, he, he became victorious over death and over sin. This is the Lord that we serve. So tonight, we're going to ask that question, how do we conquer like Jesus conquered? Now, let me ask you guys, by way of intro here, let me just ask you, how is your Christian walk going? <laughs> It's a question I love to ask. <laughs> I love to ask that. How, how's your Christian walk going? When was the last time you asked yourself that? How, 
How is it going? And if you had to describe to me right now, if we were sitting one-on-one and I asked you that question, how is your Christian walk going, and you had to describe that, would it be a description of victory or a description of defeat? If you were to ask yourself the question, how is my Christian walk going, is your Christian walk a walk of victory or defeat? Do you feel as though you're walking in a place of being a conqueror or do you feel like you're walking in the place of being conquered? Do you feel like things are going well or do you feel like things are going hard? Do you feel like you're winning? Do you feel like at this, this thing called Christianity that we're, we're headed towards heaven and we're living out this, this time between being saved and going to heaven, do you feel like you're doing well in that or do you feel like you're just struggling? Do you feel like you're defeated? And the Christian life is hard, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, and I, and I know that. When you guys come in here on a Wednesday night, and it's the middle of the week, and you're tired, and, and you've had a hard time at work, and things are, are difficult, um, and, and, and you've seen time and time again your flesh pop up, and you've seen you respond to your spouse or your kids in ways that frustrates you, and you've seen yourself fall into the same patterns of things over and over again through your life, and it's tiring, and it's exhausting, and that, that in many ways is the Christian life. But is the Christian life meant to be one that is lived in a state of defeat or of victory? That's what I want to wrestle with tonight with you guys. I think many of us come into church and we, we wear a cloak, um, not only just of, of perhaps, you know, a fakeness, but we wear a cloak of something that seems like humility. When someone asks how we're doing or how's your Christian walk, we go, you know, I'm just, um, I'm a sinner and I'm struggling and all that kind of stuff. And, and it would appear to be humility sometimes. But I think sometimes that is actually a cloak to disguise defeat. You're not so much just grappling with your own, uh, the reality of your own weakness and leaning into God with that, that sometimes when we talk about our defeat as Christians, we talk about our struggles as Christians, we talk about our hurt as Christians, we're, we're not actually humble, we're actually defeated. And we're operating and living out of this posture of defeat where we have sort of just decided that this thing is hard and I'm bad at it, so I'm just going to let that define me. Now tonight, what I want to shoot at tonight is I want to try to clarify, how does the Christian walk not in a posture of defeat, but in a posture of victory? How does the Christian not allow the hardship and the hardness of this world as Christians as we walk to, to overcome us? How do we walk as victors? Can we walk as victors, are we just doomed to go through this hard thing called life? Is there any victory? Will there be victory? I want to draw your attention before we get into Romans 8 to the very end of the chapter. We're going to start where we're going to end. And I'm just going to tell you right up front tonight, guys, tonight's not going to be a sermon. Um, so don't expect a sermon. Tonight's a Bible study, okay? So, so I don't have a super well-packaged uh, sermon. What I have is we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at the whole chapter, verse by verse. We're going to exposit chapter 8 of Romans, and I have a very specific reason for that. And the reason why is this. At the very end of the chapter, Paul gives away uh, the crescendo, the point of the whole chapter. And these, these are the words that he says in verse 37. You've heard these words before. Paul says this about the Christian life. He says, in all things, okay, everybody say all things. Okay, not some things. In all things, we are more than conquerors. Now, he doesn't just say that we're conquerors. He could have just said that. That would have been fine. That would have been encouraging. Thanks, Paul. He, he, he said more than that. He said, you're more than conquerors. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on, on the book of Romans, he points out that it could also be translated super conquerors. That as Christians, we are super conquerors. We have more than conquered everything that this world can throw at us, everything the enemy has for us, everything our flesh throws our way. We are more than conquerors over that. How are we more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. Now, this is an astounding statement. Okay, this is an astounding statement that we are more than conquerors. Because I don't know about you guys, but I don't always feel like that. I don't feel like a super conqueror. I feel like a super screw-up. <laughs> I feel like a super failure. I, I feel like constantly I'm coming back to the reality that, that as a Christian, in this Christian life, I know I'm saved, I get that, but man, I just blow it, and I blow it, and I blow it, and I don't feel like a conqueror. I feel like a failure. But here's Paul with confidence, with complete confidence, saying very clearly, 
Not only are you conquerors, but you're super conquerors. You're more than conquerors. You are victorious. Well, Sam, he's talking about when you die and go to heaven. He's not talking about right now. He's talking about someday when you die and you shed your sinfulness and you go off to heaven, then you're a conqueror. Actually, no, that's not what he says. He doesn't say you will be a conqueror. He says you are right now. Right now, you are a conqueror. You are victorious if you are in Christ Jesus. If you have union with Christ, you are a conqueror. How can Paul be so confident of that? How can he be so confident about something that, honestly, if you even look at his life, didn't seem to be a reality for him? Was Paul a conqueror? His boat got shipwrecked. He spent most of his ministry in prison. He had a thorn in the flesh that seemed to consume him, and it was something that he constantly thought about and wrestled with. He never got to do the ministry that he, he was hoping to do in the future, going to Rome, going to Spain, at least not in the way that he thought. He never got to go and minister to the Jews in the way that he had a heart to do, his brothers. He, he, eventually, he, he never really fulfilled everything that he was wanting to do. So how is Paul a conqueror? How is he a conqueror? How am I a conqueror now? Still in a sinful state, still struggling, still wrestling. How am I a conqueror? How is Paul saying that? Well, victory for the believer is not measured by circumstance. It's measured by our heaven stance. It's not measured by how good things go down here. It's measured by who we are up there. That is where our victory lies. But it doesn't just stay there. Understand that. Okay, so yeah, I'm a victory in heaven, but I'm a loser down here. <laughs> Bummer. No, that's not, that's not how God wants us to live the Christian life. The Christian life is this. This is very important. I'm just going to give away my whole sermon, and then we'll go through it, okay? The Christian life is growing into who you are. You guys get that? The Christian life is growing up into who you are. We are victors. God has made us more than conquerors. Now. Not just in the future when we get our glorified body, but now. And what we are in right now is the process of becoming who we are. Oh, that's confusing. I know. The Bible says it, though. Okay? We are becoming who we already are. We are realizing what has already been purchased. We are playing out what has already been finished. That is what the chapter of Romans 8 is all about. And the reason I started at the end is because the end of chapter 8 is the crescendo. You guys know what a crescendo is? So sometimes when we play worship songs on Sunday, there's a build to a song. Okay, we're all about those actually. We do those all the time. There's this build and, and the drums are building and the bass is going. And the point of that is, is at some point it's going to go off and it's going to crescendo. And that's the part where you just go, wow, God's good, hopefully. Or, wow, you totally missed that note. See, that was terrible. You forgot your lyric. Whatever. But there's a crescendo in songs, okay? There's a crescendo. And that crescendo is as good as the build leads up to it. It's, it's, only, it's only as good as the build really makes it. So Romans 8 is a crescendo. And, and really, the, this verse that we are more than conquer is, is, is the point of chapter 8. Everything in chapter 8 is building towards this. And I'll even go further I'll say that Romans 8 as a chapter is the crescendo of the whole book of Romans. All of Romans, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, all these chapters, is building towards a crescendo. And chapter 8 of Romans is Paul finally says, hey, let me just lay it on you now. Now that I've given you all the bad news, the hard news, the reality news, let me tell you the really good news of our victory in Christ and who we are in him now. That is sort of the, the building movement of the book of Romans, and we're jumping in at the crescendo, okay? I wish we had time to do the whole book, but we don't. We're going to jump in and do the chapter. So that's the context. Now, before we get started, there's two things that we tend to do with struggles, okay? And what I'm talking about tonight is victory, right? We're living in, in how do we live in victory in the Christian life? There's two things that we tend to do as Christians when it comes to struggles and hardship. The first thing we tend to do is that we say victory means you never struggle. Have you ever heard someone preach that before? That to be in victory, what Paul's talking about there and being a conqueror means that you just never struggle. So if you struggle, if you're sick, if you, if you have um, anxiety or if you have fear or if you have anything, all of those things are just a, a straight up result of a lack of faith. So you just need to cast that out and walk in victory. So if you have a broken leg, it's because you don't have faith. 
command it, right? That's, that's not true. We refute that. Okay, that's the word faith movement. We refute that. That's, that's not how we think of victory is the, in the Christian life. The other side of it, the other extreme, is to say that there is no victory. We're just resigned and stuck living in our state of brokenness and fallenness, and there is no victory. <laughs> there is no freedom from things. There is no freedom from sin. There is no freedom from struggle, from anxiety, from sickness, from, from whatever. We, we don't believe that either. We believe this. We believe that victory is not avoiding hard things or being resigned to hard things, but it is in our willingness to go through hard things and remain victorious. The Christian is victorious when he goes through the hard things and comes out victorious. Not avoiding them, not avoiding them necessarily, going through them when we must, but believing that there is victory for us. There is a state that we can live in of freedom. So what I want to do tonight, guys, we're going to go through the whole chapter 8, and Paul points out 10 ways in this chapter that we are more than conquerors. He points out 10 ways that we are victorious. And what I hope to do tonight, and this is important, what I hope to do for for you tonight is I want to get you guys as Christians, for those of you that are believers, that are soaked in the blood of Christ, atoned for by Christ, your faith is resting on Christ. For those of you in this room tonight that believe in Jesus, I want you to walk out that door seeing yourself not as a victim, but as a victor. Not as a victim, but as a victor. Someone who is victorious, not someone who is bound or stuck or, or in, controlled by. So these are 10 things that Paul goes through in the, in, the, in the chapter 8 of Romans that he shows us just how victorious we are. And my hope tonight is that I'm going to preach. I want Paul to preach. Okay, I'm not going to preach. I'm just going to tell you guys what chapter 8 says, and I'm going to get out of the way, because I believe that what Paul prophesies here in chapter 8 of Romans is one of the most profound and transformational texts in the whole Bible, and if you can just get it, if you can just walk out of here believing chapter 8 of Romans, you are going to walk in victory. Okay, now you're going to forget it in like 20 minutes, so you got to remind yourself again, that's the Christian life, but... I want to hold forth for you guys the the sermon that Paul gives in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see the flow of what he's saying. And the point of what he's saying is how we live in victory. And he does it with 10 things. So you got your outline. If you guys just want to fill in the blanks as you go, um, let's take a look at it. So number one, and we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 8. Number one, we are victorious over, we have victory over condemnation. We have victory over condemnation. Take a look at verse 1. The first thing that Paul says in regards to us understanding our victory in Christ is that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is condemnation, Sam? Condemnation is simply this. Condemnation has actually to do with penal servitude. It's this idea that somebody owns you. Somebody has something against you. Somebody has, you owe somebody money, you owe somebody something, and they can now hold that against you to own you. So if you had a debt as a slave in ancient times and you couldn't pay that debt, you paid it with yourself. So they own you. They have control of you. That's the idea there, essentially. This is how F.F. Bruce, the commentator, he, he paraphrases it this way. He says, verse 1 could go like this. There is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude, as though they had never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. So what Paul's saying is he's saying you have victory over condemnation. What that means is that you are not a slave anymore. You don't owe anything to anyone. But God, your con- there is no condemnation for you. Nobody has their talons in you. Nobody, you don't owe anything to anyone but God. God owns you completely. There is no condemnation for you. That means, therefore, there is no guilt. There is no shame. There is no, no sense of feeling like, man, I need to do something to earn something. This is the heartbeat of the gospel, right? That we stand before God, victorious, and unowned. We are free, but we are free to be slaves to Christ, and our freedom is in being 
slaves to Christ. So he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit. No, that word law doesn't mean law like the Mosaic law. Okay, that, could, that word law there could better be translated principle or power. So for the power or the principle of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Again, power or principle. So it could go like this. He could say in verse 2, the power of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power of sin and death. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's no power. There's no power of anything to condemn you. This is the whole point of this chapter. Nothing can condemn you. Nothing has, owns you as a slave. You are free. There's no condemnation for you. How? Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, what he's trying to say here is that the law, okay, the Mosaic law, what, what, what God told us to do in the Old Testament it told us how to be perfect, how to be righteous, but it never gave us the power to do it. Okay, it never gave us the power to do it. It's kind of like this. You open a Christmas present on Christmas morning and you're really excited and you pull it out of the box and, and you're really excited to play with it just to realize that even though there's an instruction manual and even though there's a tool, there's no batteries. <laughs> so you don't get to play with your toy. I mean, how many times Christmas morning have we run to the store because somebody bought our kids an electric toy and it didn't come with batteries. Paul's saying this is what the law is like. Apart from Christ, there is condemnation because the law tells you how to be righteous, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. It doesn't give you the tools. It doesn't give you the batteries. It doesn't give you the, the ability to actually live according to the law. That's what he's saying. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What that's saying is that Jesus lived the law perfectly. And then through something theologians call imputation, he just gave it to us. He imputed it to us. He covered us with it. So that when God looks at us, I know this is a theology, but follow me. Okay, When God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He doesn't see my broken, sinful life. He sees Christ's perfect life covered over the top of me, imputed over me, and my standing now becomes Christ's perfect standing with God. And that is why there is therefore now no condemnation. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. Now, why does that matter? Why does Paul take four verses to tell us that we aren't condemned? Why does he take four verses to tell us that we have victory over condemnation? Why does that matter to life? It matters because Paul knows that we have a tendency to believe a lie. And that lie is that we are not fully justified. That lie is that, that someone still owns us. That the world, we still owe something. That, that something still needs to be paid. That that. That justification is not complete. That the sacrifice is not enough. That if I could just do a little bit more. You know, Sam, we've heard this so many times. Yeah, but we still live in it. We still wake up with condemnation saturating our lives. We still wake up with guilt and shame. Not guilt of God's restoring hand pushing us towards repentance, but guilt that pushes us towards being broken. Guilt that pushes us away from the loving hand of God. We wake up every day and our default setting is to believe that there is still condemnation for us. That we are still owned by sin. That we are still owned by this world. And so we still serve something that no longer has power over us. We have been set free from a slave master and we still by default go back to that slave master and serve him. And what Paul is saying is you are free. Don't go back and serve him again. There is no condemnation for you. The, the mentality of a victim is that I am a victim to guilt and shame. It's too strong. I can't overcome it. Have you guys ever felt like that? I don't want to be shameful. I don't want to be filled with condemnation, but it's, I'm a slave to it. I, I, it has victory over me. Wrong! It does not. You are victorious over it through Christ. Condemnation has no power over you. 
So when you wake up in the morning and you feel condemned and you don't feel righteous, even though you know the blood of Christ is covering you, you speak to condemnation and you say, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, for I am in Christ Jesus. You are victorious over condemnation. It is not victorious over you. We are to walk in the freedom of that. You preach those words to yourself daily. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation, and you walk in freedom. You walk in freedom. Number two, not only are we victorious over condemnation, we have victory over sin as well. We have victory over sin. Take a look at verse 5. Paul continues in his argument for our freedom, for our victory. He says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh. Everyone say, not in the flesh. Okay, that's you. Now, I used to read this all wrong. I used to think about this verse thinking like, okay, so if I wake up today and I'm going through my day and I'm in the flesh, then I'm not pleasing God. But if I wake up that day and I just happen to be on the right side of the bed and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not in the flesh, I think I got that backwards. If I'm not in the flesh, then I'm pleasing God. So if I'm in the flesh, I'm not pleasing God. And if I'm not in the flesh, then I am pleasing God. That's not what this is saying. What this is describing is the state of the non-believer. What this is describing is what the non-believer's ability is to do and not do. And what he's saying is that for those that are not born again, for those that are not saved, it is impossible for them to please God. Why? Because sin is their master. What that means for you and I, if we are believers is that sin is not our master. What that means is is that we are free from something that dominates us. Now, there's, there's a really... Sin is tricky. We struggle with sin. Sin is constantly at the door knocking. Is it not every time we walk out the door, every time we get out of our bed, every time we open our eyes, sin is crouching, waiting, right? Sin is there. Sin is pervasive. Sin is aggressive, Sin is constantly coming after us. But look at me, guys. As Christians, you are free from the power of sin. Do you understand that? You are not a victim to sin. You are victorious over sin. Well, Sam, why do I still sin? Because it has influence over you. Let me explain it like this. If I'm a U.S. citizen and I you know, and part of this country, then this country has power over me. If I don't pay my taxes, if I don't, you know, if respond to the draft or whatever it is, they can lock me up. They can take, reach their hands into my bank account. They have power over me. I am subservient to this country. Now, if I leave and I move to, let's say, Australia, and I, and I get rid of my citizenship, and I become a citizen of a new country, U.S. has no power over me. I have moved away. Now, I can still give the U.S. influence over me, though, can I? If I'm watching American TV, if I'm on American social media, the United States, even though I'm not a citizen of that country anymore, even though they can't reach in and and take my tax money or anything like that, even though they can't do that, they're still influencing me if I allow them to. If I go to United States News, if I go to CNN, if I go to ABC, if I don't do that, they have no influence. So is the reality for the believer. Through the cross, you have been set free from the power of sin. But you have not yet been set free from the presence of sin. Does that make sense? The cross has set you free from the penalty of sin. All sin is paid for. And in this life, we are learning how to fight sin. We have not yet been released from the presence of sin. It still influences there. When you walk and you see something tempting, you do not have to sin as the believer. You have the freedom to do that. So you need to understand that. 
Romans 6, 5, the whole, chapter Romans of, uh, the whole chapter 6 of Romans talks about this. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Listen, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have freedom from it. It's important to understand that. So how do we gain victory over sin? Okay, Sam, so, so sin doesn't have power over me, but it still has influence. How do I guard against its influence? Well, it says in our text, it says to specifically set your mind on things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the things of the Spirit serves God. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh, so he is. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What Paul is saying is in order to walk in the victory over sin that has been purchased for you, you need to rewire your brain to see it for what it is. You need to rewire your brain to begin to obey God and long for God and obedience to God more. That's why we are in the scriptures. That's why we spend time in prayer to wash our minds, wash our lives, and get to the point where, yes, sin has no power over us, but in the influence of sin over us has diminished. That's the goal of the Christian, is to put so to death the influence of sin that it no longer has, its voice is quiet. Its voice is quiet. We so barricaded it in. It'd be like a, a noisy phone going off in the morning, and you stick your pillow over it, and though it's still there, it gets quieter. Sin is put to death, but we must quiet it. That is victory. It's important because there is a lie that is being fed to you by both your flesh and the enemy, and that is that sin cannot be defeated. This sin has got me by the neck. I can't get away from it. It's too hard. So therefore, I'll just keep it secret. I'll keep it hidden. I won't tell anybody because there's just no way it's going to go away. It's too hard. That's a lie. You have been freed from the power of that sin. You are allowing that sin to dominate you. You're allowing that sin to be your master. That is not your master. You have let it be your master. Now, it is a process to quiet the influence of that sin in your life. And it takes brothers, and it takes accountability, and it takes confession, and it takes hard work. But the freedom that comes is victory. This is how God wants us to live. Not consumed by a master that has been put to death. There is no condemnation. Sin has no power over us. We are free in Christ. And the mentality of the victim is that I can't help but sin. That's totally not true. The mentality of the victor looks at sin and says, I am dead to you. You have no power over me. When you feel temptation, you stop and say, sin, you have no power over me. It still has influence. It's still tempting. It's still hard, but it has no power. It cannot make you. Number three, Paul goes on in his argument for our freedom, for our victory. And he says, victory, we also have victory over death. Just condemnation, not just sin. We also have victory over death. I'm going to speed up a little bit here because I'm running out of time. and We have a lot to go. Take a look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Listen to verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is saying two things about how we have victory over death. The first thing he's saying is, is that just because your physical body dies, you live on. This is a reality of the Christian life. Our body wastes away, but our spirit grows stronger. We grow weaker in the flesh and stronger in the spirit. Every day that we breathe, every day that we get older, it becomes a day closer to shedding this body that is just a tent, is just a temporary place, and moving into freedom. Listen to what Paul says in Corinthians 15, 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Any of you feel like you're wasting away outwardly? Am I the only one? I'm only 28. I already feel it. I'm wasting away outwardly, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Death has no victory over us because death for us is not death. It's the shedding of a tent. It's the shedding of a physical temporal place where we're just hanging out for a while. 
Death for the believer is waking up from a bad dream and seeing what reality is. Can you imagine what death, can you imagine what our lives would look like if we thought of death that that way? If we said, death, you have no power over me. I am an eternal being. I have an eternal purpose and an eternal place that I'm going to. And no matter what happens, no matter how sick I get, how broken I am, how much my body wastes away, my spirit is what I live for, who I am. And I'm going to get a new body one day. What does it say specifically? It says that the same power that raised Christ. Look at it, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Do you understand how cool that is? He's saying the same spirit that raised Christ's dead body out of the grave and raised him to power on high lives inside you. The same power. The same spirit. If he could raise Christ, how much more can he raise us? And he will raise us. The reason this matters is because we allow the lie that death has control over us. And I don't just mean death. Physical infirmity the decaying of our body, we allow that to have victory over us when we invest all of our life trying to avoid death. We invest all of our life trying to avoid the possibility of suffering, the possibility that our bodies might waste away. They're gonna waste away. You're gonna get older. You can either spend your life or your life will spend itself on whatever it wants. We can either spend all of our money and all of our time trying to preserve our life and it's still gonna die or we can invest that into the kingdom of God where things and rust, rust and moth don't don't destroy. Christ was trying to tell us in the Gospels. He said, don't invest yourself in your physical body. It's going to die. It's going to go. To live in victory is to say, take my body. I don't care. That's not what I live for. I'm not a victim to death. I am already raised as a victor with Christ. Number four, we are victorious. We have victory over fear. Not only do we have victory over condemnation, over sin, over death, but also over fear. Take a look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What Paul is saying is, you have victory over fear for a few reasons. For the first reason, because you have a father. We have a father, not a God that will pick on us, not a God who is out for our worst. We have a father, a father who wants our best, a father who, who, like a father should and like a father will, out of instinct, naturally will guard his son or his daughter. He says, you don't have the spirit of slavery, but the spirit of adoption. You're no longer a slave to death and sin. You are an adopted son by the father. Listen to what F.F. Bruce says about this word adoption. He says, The term adoption may smack somewhat of artificially in our ears. In other words, <laughs> uh, adoption is sort of commonplace for us. We just think, yeah, okay, we adopt. You add two or three maybe adopted kids onto your already, you know, your little tribe you have already, perhaps. But he says, But in the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father, to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully, more fully, and and reproduce the father's character more worthily. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying that when someone adopted someone in that time, it wasn't just to add more kids. It wasn't just out of a a need for social justice. Let's just, you know, like like there's kids in our culture that need to be adopted. That's not why people adopted in Greco-Roman culture, first century. People adopted because they wanted a specific kid to carry on their legacy. 
because they saw something special, important, valuable in that specific child. What Paul is saying is that we do not need to fear because not only do we have a father, but we have a father that has chosen us, a father that has adopted us, that has picked us out of the world and said, you are my child, and therefore we cry out, what does he say? Abba, Father, understand something. Abba, Father was not something used by Jews. That was not a way that that Jews would typically describe God the Father. They didn't cry out to him like that. Yahweh, God, perhaps. Elohim, perhaps. Jehovah, Ratha, Jehovah, Nisi, perhaps. But Abba, Father, Daddy, was not an expression used. And here Paul is saying, you don't need to fear. You have victory over fear because you have a Father who has adopted you and loves you, and you can cry out to him, Daddy. Hang your anxiety on that. When you get up in the morning and you feel anxious and you feel fearful and you feel like you don't know what's going to happen today, remember that there is a God who is more powerful than any being in the world who does not just know you but chose you and not just chose you but loves you and doesn't just love you like a son but even loves you like a son he would pick and point at. Not even just a son who said, well, this is what I have, so this is, no, a son that I'm going after. I'm choosing this son. That's the God that we serve. That's the father that we have, and that should strike out the fear that we have. What would your life look like if it was not victimized by fear? Can you you imagine that? How much we would do for the Lord if fear was not in the equation, if we really believed that God was a good father and would not call us to do things that he would not give us the power and strength to do. So you tell fear when you wake up in the morning or when you go home at night, when you're in the middle of the day and fear grabs you, and it will, and it does because we are still under the influence of it. When it does, you tell fear, you have no victory over me. You have no victory over me, fear. I am not your victim. I am victorious through the finalized adoption of my father. I am free from that. You do not have to live in fear. There is freedom in that. We can be victorious in that. Number five, we have victory over suffering. Not only do we have victory over condemnation, over sin, over death, over fear, over suffering, Yeah, suffering. That's where I was trying to stop. We have victory over suffering. Number five. Take a look at verse 18. Paul says, again, in his case for our freedom, in his case for our victory, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what Paul's saying here is he's saying, as Christians, you are to have victory over this thing called suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that, now hear me, that doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying if you just have enough faith, you'll never suffer. You break your leg, you just believe God, and your leg will get fixed. Maybe, maybe not. We learned that on Sunday, right? The paralytic, Jesus said, hey, get up and walk. Why? Because I'm going to make an example out of you. He could have just as easily said, don't get up and walk. I'm going to make an example out of you, right? So suffering comes regardless. But how do we have victory in that suffering, This is how Paul says, I consider that my suffering, my present suffering, is nothing compared with the glory that is revealed to us. So his first reason how we can suffer victoriously is that the glory that is to come far outweighs the suffering that we are in presently. It's going to be so much greater than that what I'm going through now pales in comparison. But that's not the only reason. Look, he gives an example. This is a really fascinating example, really intriguing example example, actually, verse 19. He says, for the creation, he's talking about the earth, the trees, the rocks, the mountains, the stars, the cosmos, for the creation, listen to this, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How weird is that? (laughs) Nature has feelings, apparently. (laughs) That's what Paul says. 
What he's saying and what he's, he, he's giving an example of is he's saying this feeling of what theologians call the already not yet. This feeling that, that God has, has done something on the cross, but it's not fulfilled yet. It's an uncomfortable state. It's an uncomfortable place. And it's an uncomfortable feeling. And it kind of makes you groan. Groan, waiting for the completion. And he says, creation itself groans. Dr. McGee, he always used to say that, that uh, nature would sing in a minor key. When you hear the trees blowing through the wind, or the wind blowing through the trees, and the ocean kind of roaring in, it's, it's, a, it's a very soothing sound, but it's almost got a sad note to it, doesn't it? Creation is sort of, has a sad feel. Because the creation itself has been subjected to futility. When, when Adam sinned, it not only affected us, it affected creation. It affected the cosmos. It affected the earth. And the earth is groaning, waiting, longing for the completion of what has been done on the cross. It's waiting in this middle place of the already not yet. And he says that as an example to say, you also are in that place, are we not? In that place where God is going to come back, going to restore all things, where we'll be in heaven with him forever, but now we're in this uncomfortable place, groaning, waiting for something to happen. But here's what I want you to see. How do we have victory over suffering? He says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Notice he says pains of childbirth. Here's how Christians can suffer in victory. Not by avoiding suffering, but realizing that our suffering is not for naught. Our suffering is birthing something. It's moving us closer to the, the, the redemption and the restoration of all things. When my wife goes through labor, it's the hardest thing for me to watch. I've watched it three times now. It's the hardest thing for me to watch. But at the same time, there's a sense of ease there because I know that she's birthing something. Something is going to come of this. There's a little life that is going to come. And even though this is horrific and it's painful, it's getting somewhere. It's, it's moving to something, right? That's the reality of what Paul's saying here. Is he's saying that, that creation and us, we're grown and we suffer and we struggle and our bodies fade away and we deal with hardship and we have relational fallout, all because the world has been subjected to futility, all because Adam stinking broke the law and God has, has subjected this world to brokenness. But we long, knowing that something good is coming and we suffer well. We, we have victory over our suffering by suffering well. What that means for us is that we are not victims to suffering. It means that we can tell suffering, what you mean for evil suffering, God will use for good. When you get cancer, when your body fails, when you have a pain that comes and, 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 and no one can see it, and it's just something you deal with every day, that you can say, yes, my body is failing, but you have no victory over me, suffering. Because what you mean for evil, God is going to use for good, to birth something in me. And that's good news. We have victory over our suffering. Number six. Number six, we have victory over weakness. Take a look at verse 26. Paul, again, making the case here for our freedom and our victory. He says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, first of all, notice that he affirms that we are weak. <laughs> he affirms that we have weakness. Living in victory doesn't mean that you don't have weakness. Living in Christian victory does not take away from the fact that you still inhabit an infirmed body, that you still have a, 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 a body that is a creature, that is created, that is fallen, that is dying, that is broken. Okay, you're still weak. And not only are you physically weak, you're spiritually weak. You're spiritually weak. So because of that, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, what? Intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So he's saying that God makes provision for our weakness. He knows that we are weak, but we walk in victory because we have the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit that lives within us that intercedes for us with God. Now, let me tell you guys about this thing called intercessory prayer that the Holy Spirit does. It might seem kind of weird to you. You might think, yeah, when, when does that ever matter? Well, there was two times this year where it mattered. Two times this year in my life where I've prayed harder than I've ever prayed before. One of them was when Stephanie was lying dead on the floor out there, and I had my arms wrapped around Craig, and he was weeping and I was weeping, and I knew I had to pray because God was the only one that could fix this. God was the only one that could raise her. And I was praying, and you know what? My prayer was terrible, theologically inaccurate. I don't even remember what I said. I think I was just begging God, just God, please, God, please, please, God, God, please. I didn't know what to say. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about what theologically, what should I say right now? What, what's, what's, what should I say? No, that was just groanings. And the Holy Spirit's just taking that, and he goes, hey, Sam, I know what you need. The Holy Spirit is interceding there between me and, and the Father. And, and I don't know what to pray, but I have victory in that anyways. In fact, the weaker I am, the more victory I have. Because the Holy Spirit now can come in and be powerful for me. The Holy Spirit can now plead on my behalf for the Father of what's going on. Another time bringing a brother to the hospital in a way that I could have sworn, and he probably was in some kind of a demon-possessed state. He's shaking, he's freaking out. I'm terrified, and I'm just, the whole time I'm just praying, and I'm praying what would seem to be worthless prayers. And, I, and even when I prayed with my mouth open, like, and I'm just trying to pray Jesus over this guy, just like, the theology was just, it was just bad. I don't even know if it was good prayer, just bad prayer. God answered it. Because the Holy Spirit was there, translating my terrible, theologically weird prayers. I'm so glad for that. Maybe, you, maybe you're a mom. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and you don't have time to pray. Your kids are bouncing off. This is my wife's reality right now. She's not here right now because she's home with my kids, right? And they're probably screaming at her right now. She's probably stressed out. Okay, this is the reality for her. She doesn't have time to go in the closet and pray for an hour. She would love to do that, but she doesn't. She has five-second prayers here and there on the way to change poopy diapers. That's her reality right now. And the Holy Spirit is stepping into the gap for her. In her weakness, she is connected to God in a way that is strong. The weaker she is, the stronger the Holy Spirit is for her. That's how it works. We are victorious in our weakness. Number seven. Not only that, but we are also victorious. We also have victory over circumstance. Take a look at verse 28. Paul goes on. He says, And we know, and this is a famous verse, you guys know it, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do me a favor, by the way, when you read that to your unsaved friend who's going through a hard time, don't cut the first part out that says, those that love God. Okay, don't, don't speak false blessing over people. And say that God's going to work everything out for you. God works everything out for those who love God. For those who are saved. For those who are believers. That's who this verse is for. This verse is for the believer. For the believer. For the believer that has, that has given himself over to God. All things work together for those who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what we have here is we have victory over our circumstances. Paul is saying that whatever happens in your life, whatever comes up, whatever circumstances come around you, so you, you lose a spouse, you lose a child, you, 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 you know, whatever it is, you lose your job, you're in a, a place of complete crush in your life, you can say without a doubt that I have victory over this circumstance. Why? Because I have a sovereign God who is in heaven working all things together all things together for my ultimate good, for God's ultimate glory. That's good news. We have victory over our circumstances. But not only in the immediate sense, he goes on, and this is probably one of the coolest verses in the Bible, I believe. We know that all those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn 
among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what Paul's saying in very theological terms. He's saying that, that what God starts, he finishes. Okay? People have called this the golden chain before. And what it means is that these things are linked together. God starts by foreknowing. And who he foreknows, he predestines. In whom he predestines, he justifies. In whom he justifies, he glorifies. So whatever point you are in that process right now, we're all in between justified and glorified, okay? We're somewhere in the middle. It's called sanctified, okay? So we're right there. But regardless of where you're at on that chain, it's all linked together. You were called before the foundations of the earth. You were God's before while you were still hating him, while you were still cursing his name, while you were still in rebellion to him. He loved you just as much then as he does now. He has always been for you. He always will be for you. He will finish what he started. All circumstances work together for the believer because God is always going to finish what he starts. Always. So whatever, at whatever point of process you are, God will finish what he's begun. We have victory over our circumstances. And number, what are we on? Eight? Number eight, we have victory over doubt. Ten-point sermon. Man, that's, whew, I'm out of time. Too many points. Okay, victory over doubt. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we have victory over doubt? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. How can we know that God loves us? Because he who did not spare his own son... I have to read this quote. It's so good. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this word spare. He says, he did not hold back from him anything that was a part of the process. What he's talking about here is he's saying that God essentially, and when he did not spare the way that he, he poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ, he, said he did not hold back from him anything that was a part of the process by which he could save us. Everything that was essential for our salvation came upon the Son of God. Though he was God's own son, his dearly beloved son, he did not spare him suffering. How different from our customary practice. We spare people whom we like. We keep things back from them. If we can spare them any suffering, we are always ready to do so. But, that, but what we are told here is that God did not hold anything back from his son. What Lloyd-Jones is saying there is that if God, who loved his son, did not spare any wrath poured out on him in order that we might be saved, how much more will he love us to the end? If he was not willing to hold back any punishment on Christ, on the cross, if he was willing to do that, how much more will he not spare anything getting us to the place of glorification, to the end, to the finish line? That's good news, and that gives us victory over our doubt. Number nine, number nine, we have victory over our accusers. And I'm just going to fly through this. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against us? In other words, who shall accuse us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have victory over our accusers because we have Jesus, who not only died for us, and not under compulsion, but willingly, and not only was raised for us, and not only is at the right hand of the Father for us, but is now interceding for us. He's in heaven now interceding for you, praying for you, ministering to you. This is good news. He's not making payment for sin. That's already been done. But he's interceding for you. We have victory over our accusers because we have, a, a, we have Christ who is in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And lastly, this is my favorite one to say, just in case you're still not convinced that you are more than conquerors, Paul goes on to say that we have victory over everything, or all things. I think I left you guys two blanks. All things. Just in case you're like, yeah, Sam, I'm feeling kind of like I have victory, but what about angels? What about height? What about depth? Well, here's what Paul says. 
He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, just in case he missed something. He says, anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? There is victory in Christ to the extent that you believe it and walk in it. And though we still suffer and though we still struggle, this world does not have power over you. Only it has influence. Sin does not have power over you. It only has influence. You are free in Christ, to walk in victory. Now let's go and do so. Amen? Lord Jesus, we thank you tonight for the power of the cross. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us now, working, interceding for us. We thank you for the finished work of what you have done, are doing, and will do. We thank you that even though we are in the already, not yet, Lord, that we still eagerly wait and are excited for what you're going to do and what you are doing. And we pray that we would be those not walking with our heads down in defeat, but walking with our chins up in victory, knowing that there is, there is truly conquering done by the cross. Lord, so give us the humility to walk in your perfect life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you guys. Have a blessed evening.